Hello, this is John Beasley from Harmony UK Podcast. I'm currently in the middle of working on the next full podcast. It'll be edition 26, and it's all about the way that Barbershop Harmony got started here in the UK and developed into what we have today. I've been talking to lots of people with fascinating stories to tell. As you can imagine, the current lockdown is complicating things just a bit, but I'm hoping to have the podcast fully finished by the end of the year. Fingers crossed. But there is one story that I couldn't wait to share. Bob Walker discovered Barbershop in the US almost 60 years ago. When he came back to Britain, he first joined and later directed the UK's first ever chorus, The Crawley Chordsman. He was a founder member and for many years a leading light in the British Association of Barbershop Singers as a judge, a coach and a past chairman of the association. And he remains an enthusiastic and knowledgeable barbershopper and a very engaging speaker. I went to meet Bob at his home some weeks before the current lockdown began. As well as singing, he plays clarinet. And as we sat down together, he told me that it was a very different kind of music which first took him to the United States way back in the early 1960s. Well, in 1962, I, I played with a jazz band for a number of years, a Dixieland band. I played clarinet, and we were, we were professional, and um, there was a big trad boom in Britain, if you can remember about that time, late 50s, early 60s. And we, had, we were lucky to get a trip to the States, and we went over there in exchange. The musicians' unions insisted in those days that if any musicians came to Britain, then musicians should have to go to the States. And we came, actually, in exchange for Ella Fitzgerald, who had not been to this country, maybe never before, wow. but not for a very long time. So she and the trio came here and obviously made a lot of money for our agent and good for him. And he therefore paid for our trip to go to the States. And we went out there and that's where I became introduced to the States. And then shortly after, leaving when I left the band... I went out there to work because at that time salaries and wages in the States were more than twice what they were for similar work in this country. That was way back, as I say, in the mid-60s. And so uh, my wife and I lived in the States for a number of years. And I'd been there just a few weeks and I got a job up in Niagara Falls with a chemical company because I uh, degree of, in chemistry. And I'd only been there for a few weeks and I saw these four guys standing there in the sales department and they were singing this music and it just hit me between the eyes and I sidled up and they saw me there and they said, oh, would you like to get, do you sing? And I said, well, a little bit. And they brought me in and they were singing Goodbye My Coney Island Baby, but with the words all changed to one of their chemical products that they were trying to sell. I think it was trichloroethylene. They were singing buy me some trichloroethylene, and so on, instead of goodbye, my Coney and baby. Well, as happens to all of us pretty much in barbershop, we hear that sound and we think, wow, what's that? I've heard a lot of music in my time, but I've never heard anything like this. I want to be part of that. And so they asked me, would I step in? And they, of course, they were woodshedding. They were making it up as they went along. And I, been, having been a jazz musician, I was familiar with improvisation. And I just stood in and took over the tenor part and really enjoyed it and didn't realize that my life was going to change from that moment onwards. <laughs> but in fact, um, shortly after that in Niagara Falls, uh, I was transferred down to Texas, down to Houston uh, as a chemical salesman, industrial salesman. And um, we used to go to the concerts of the Houston chapter every year, but for some reason I never joined. I never thought of joining. And then 
I joined a, a young businessman's breakfast club and the time came for me to find a speaker. And I thought, what can I, who can I get? I wonder if there's somebody from that barbershop organization. So I looked them up in the yellow pages, as it was in those days, and I found the name of this gentleman called Bob Markson, who, who was a member of SPVSQSA, which is the original uh, acronym for what is now the Barbershop Harmony Society. And he came along and he spoke to us. And he was a big, tall Texan with a, with a Western suit and a hat and the boots and everything. Lovely man. He was a base. And, of course, having spoken to us and we had our breakfast, he did as all good barbershoppers would do. And he said, um, would you like to come to our meeting next Monday? And I said, well, yeah, that would be fine. And I went along and that was that. Tidelanders, based in Houston, Texas, is a performing chorus of excellent quality and ability using their voices to blend into perfect a cappella harmony. Founded in 1946, this performing arts organization is one of the oldest in the city of Houston. And I joined, and I was very lucky to join. Luck plays so much of a part in our lives, doesn't it? And um, it just so happened I joined the Houston chapter. They hadn't competed for about seven years, I don't believe, in the society's competitions because they hadn't won the district. But they won the district and they were deciding to go to the convention in St. Louis. So I got right in on the ground floor, passed my audition, joined the chorus. We went up St. Louis that July. That would be uh, 1969. And we came second. So I have a little silver medal to hang on my chest if I choose to. Um, we were behind the, it was the VM of their day, and they were the Louisville Thoroughbreds. They were the great, greatest chorus in, in, in the society, and, and they won the, every three years, because as you know, you drop out for two years in the States if you, as a chorus if you, when you win. And, you know, they regularly every three years, the Louisville Thoroughbreds won, and they were in that year, and the Houston Tidelanders, we were called, and we came second. And uh, it was just, uh, as I say, I had some old guys from other chapters coming up to me and saying, he said, I've been in barbershop for 39 years, and I've never been to international and sung, and young whippersnappers like you come along. Of course, they did it with a smile on their face. But I know where they were coming from. What a thing to have, though. What a, a, a silver medal from an international contest is just... I think you must be the only one person in the UK that's got one of It those. may well yeah, be yeah. now, because I know some people have gone out there. There's a gentleman called Graham Smith who went out and joined the VM. So he has some gold medals. But, of course, he lives there, and he's now a, he's now a citizen. So yeah, I, I may well be <laughs> the only person with that. Tell us about re your return to the UK, then, because you, you must have been on a high having been in that contest in 1969 and come where you did. Um, did you... Did you worry about leaving Barbershop behind when you came back in? Well, of course. I mean, I really wanted to carry on. It was a fantastic thing for me. And I got in touch with um, the headquarters, which was in Kenosha, Wisconsin in those days, until actually until a few years ago when they moved to Nashville. And um, I got in touch, presumably by phone or airmail or pigeon or something, because there was no, no email in those days. And I said, is there any Barbershop in England? And they got back in touch and said, yes, we know of one club which was founded by a man called Harry Dancer. Well, he is, of course, the founder of Babs. Harry Dancer, 
and um, he's founded a club in Crawley in Sussex. And I remember thinking, what another stroke of luck, because I was going to be moving back to East Grinstead in Sussex, which is only about eight miles away. If, if it had been even 70, 80 miles in those days, no motorways, it would have taken me two hours to get there. I never could have joined. So very lucky. So when we came back to England, within 24 hours, I'd been, I got in touch, found that they had a, a Crawley Club Committee meeting, went across and met all the guys there, including Don Amos, of course, and uh, our, our founder, founder chairman of Babs, and um, joined Crawley there and then. And shortly after that, I became assistant director and then director and so on. And Crawley had been going for, for, for about five years or so, I suppose, oh, Craw- at that time. Crawley had been going a long time at that time. Crawley, yes, Crawley would have been going for, yes, you're absolutely right, five years. And mm. um, what happened originally was that in 1960, Harry Dancer and his wife went to the States for a holiday and they went to New York and they went to see The Music Man. And as many of you will know, The Music Man has a barbershop quartet in it. They are the school board. And at that time, it was the Buffalo Bills Quartet who won in 1950, won the gold medal in 1950. And they appeared, in, they gave up their jobs and became professional performers on Broadway in the, in the Music Man. They didn't go on the road. There was another quartet actually called the Eastern Airs who went on the road when that show was taken on the road. But in, in broad, on Broadway, it was the Buffalo Bills, and of course, wonderful quartet, and Harry, Harry had sung some harmony in his youth, but never really barbershop, and of course, he heard this, and thought, what a wonderful thing, and he went to a, a record shop, apparently, in New York, and amazingly, he found a barbershop album there, a barbershop LP, and on the back was the address and telephone number of the society, and so he, in Kenosha, and so he got in touch with them, and they helped him a lot with music and so forth. So he came back to England. This would be 1960. And he thought he was a bit too old to sing in a quartet. But he, he got his two sons, Tony and John, and two friends, Bob Witherington. And um, uh, uh, the lead's name was, uh, I can't remember his first name. Steele was his second name. And they formed a quartet with the original name of the Barbershop Four. Now, you may think that's a bit hackneyed, but when there are no other barbershop quartets in the country, that's the natural thing to call themselves. And the Barbershop Four sang for four years. And in 1964, a wonderful Canadian gentleman called George Shields, who for many years directed um, one of the chapters, it was the East York chapter in Toronto, he came over to England with his chorus. And they put on a show in London and Harry and the quartet all went up to hear the show and of course went round back afterwards and met him. And they invited um, George to come down to Crawley. And while he was there chatting to them, he said, well, you know, Barbershop Quartet's wonderful. You're having a terrific time. And you could have even better time if you did this within a chorus because other quartets will form and people can sing who maybe aren't quite able to sing in a quartet and you'll you'll get a big community together. And so it was George Shields, the Canadian, who inspired Harry and the quartet to form what became the Crawley Chordsman in 1964. So you're perfectly right, the Crawley Chordsman had been going at that time for five years. We want to say hello, we want to see you smile, we'd like to sing some good old songs for you. We're here to be with you for a little while, to sing Barbershop in the English 
it's because I'm a Londoner that I love London so. Maybe it's because I'm a Londoner that I think of her wherever I go. when you first found them? I mean, you, here you were from, from this huge chorus in, in the United States who comes second to international. You come along, you join Britain's only barbershop chorus at the time. Compare and contrast. Well, the most important thing of all, of course, is that we're so friendly. and Everybody welcomes everybody. And that, to start with, that's even more important than the sound that they're making. Um, but in fact, I think there are about 20 of them. And they made a perfectly good sound. For a small chorus, they sang in tune. Goodness me, isn't that important? We get a lot of people considering lots of other aspects of interpretation and stage presence, and they can't sing in tune. Most important thing you can do, folks, is actually sing in tune. And they sang in tune, they sang well, they did some craft, um, and they were just lovely people. The sound was completely different. But it was good music. I enjoyed it. They had no auditions. In fact, I think I sang on stage with them within the first month of joining. <laughs> I probably didn't know half of the songs. But um, that's the way they were. And, and they, they did make a good sound. Of course, when I was on stage, I did an awful lot of miming to the parts that I didn't know because I wasn't going to be singing wrong notes with them. But that's how I joined them. And they were a fine group and they recruited well. Tony Dancer, who was Harry's uh, younger son, uh, who was in fact the baritone in the quartet, the, the Barbershop Four, he was the director. And of course, I came, I came and met these guys. And as soon as they realized, not only that I'd been in the States, but that I'd sung in this silver medal chorus, all of a sudden a sort of artificial halo must have appeared around my head, completely unjustified, because although I could read music and I'd played jazz, I was no no formal musician in any way, and um, I was therefore sort of given a mantle which which I wasn't really very comfortable. But nonetheless, I think I grew into it, and after a couple of years, I became Tony's assistant director, and then a couple of years after that, he retired, and I took over directing. But um, so so that really was sort of thrust upon. Isn't there some quote about? Um, uh, some are made and so, some have... Some, some, some are born great, some have greatness thrust upon them uh, and there's, a, there's another group as well and I can't remember what uh, Well, never do. mind, but I'm very glad you <laughs> said... Oh, they achieve greatness, that's I, it. I tried to avoid the word greatness because that wouldn't have been appropriate at all. But, but yes, yeah, so I, I kind of had this thrust upon me and I really enjoyed directing Crawley. They were lovely guys. And another nice thing was I'd, I'd learned to arrange. Well, I'd taught myself to arrange. As I said, I could, I could read music, but I had never... Never learned harmony. In those days, I mean, you could go up to grade six and seven, and I did like grade seven theory when I was learning the piano as a kid, but we never did harmony. And so once I got in, I was interested in how the style was put together. And what I basically did was I took my Wild Irish Rose and I just pulled it apart, rather like you can learn how an engine in a car works if you just take one and take it to pieces. And um, 
I pulled it apart and I found, oh yes, here's the bass, it's down there on these important notes, these roots and fifths, and, and the tenor's always above the melody, yes, floating about there, and the baritone, or poor old baritone, has to find the note that's missing. You know, did you know, in the early days, the baritone wasn't called the baritone, he was called the fill-in. I didn't know that, no. We're going, we're going prior to the society now, so we're going way back into, into the history, you know, before 1940. Yes, he was called the fill-in, because mm. that's exactly what he does. Cue lots of jokes about baritones. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, all the baritones are all the butts of jokes, aren't they? It, it, it used to be, you know, that the SPBSQSA, some people changed that to some people, especially baritones, should quit singing altogether. <laughs> Uh, we can't make that joke anymore because they're not called that. But um, yes, and um, so I, you know, I figured out that's what's happened. I started to do some simple arrangements, and I learned by making mistakes and getting my quartet to sing it. And, oh dear, that didn't sound right. So I'd go back and try again. And as uh, you know, a lot of things in human life, you learn it by trial and error. And the nice thing about the chordsman was that um, I started to arrange, and I got reasonably proficient. And um, they sang basically all my arrangements hmm. so I could find a song any song I wanted them to sing even if I didn't have an arrangement published or wherever I could do one myself and it was a great pleasure to hear your own arrangement sung by a group and what sort of repertoire were you looking at were you looking at the traditional barbershop songs the old songs as as, as, as people call them or, or were you looking I mean this was the, the end of the 60s so there was a lot of new music around that was quite melodic the Beatles Hermits Hermits uh, a lot of pop groups doing things that were perfectly barbershopable what sort of repertoire were you looking at well when I came back yes it was in 69 it was pretty much your traditional your traditional barbershop stuff fine songs obviously and and the thing that the thing that I've always felt that we do best, and therefore, not that we should stick to it, but that we should be aware of the fact that what we do best is singing complex harmony, but consonant harmony. Not jazz chords. We're not very good at singing jazz chords because our vocal style is very much in the mask. It is forward. It's rather like this. And if you sing these jazz chords with this sound to them, they really don't sound very good because there are a lot of overtones and things in there which clash. You have to kind of use more of a microphone voice if you're going to make those jazz chords work. And because we like to project our voice and, and put a lot of mask resonance in there, we tend to be better singing consonant chords. That is seventh chords, some sixth chords, obviously tonic uh, triads and, and so on. And um, luckily... Songs were being written in the early part of the last century, which had a lot of these chords, and they, they would have quite complex progressions. The chords themselves weren't particularly complex. In fact, I believe there's only about a dozen chords that are really part of the barbershop style. And of those, probably no more than five, which would form 60-70% of all our songs. So the chords themselves aren't complicated, but we had quite complex um schemes and progressions of those chords and some of these are natural progressions some of them suddenly you'll hear a chord which wakes you up and comes out of left field at you and so that's what we are really good at because we're ear singers and we tune by ear we can hear these chords ringing there's that word we can hear the chord ringing and so we know whether it's in tune and those are the kind of songs we enjoy and in Crawley those are the kind of songs that we sang by the way, another thing which I would caution in uh, singing songs with jazz chords in them is that if one person goes slightly out of tune, it's very difficult to tell whether it is you or whether it's somebody else and whether you've gone sharp or flat. The great thing about the chords that we sing in traditional barbershop, and should I say 
in contest barbershop now, because we're still much tighter in contest than we are in our, in our normal repertoire, um, those are the kind of songs where I think the, the mathematicians would say they have an attractor, rather like a pendulum. If you knock a pendulum out of the way of where it should be, it comes back naturally. And so we can hear where these chords are, and we can hear if we go slightly sharp or flat. I think we can hear that, and we can therefore tune it. And it's easier, therefore, to stay in tune. And so those were the kind of songs that we sang. But, as you say, the Beatles were coming along there, and they have some really lovely melodic songs, and we did sing some of those. So, Bob, take us through a, a, a typical concert that you might have given in those days. What, what would have been on the repertoire? Well, it's interesting because we were really the, we were the only club in this country. And we put on a show every year, and we didn't have the advantage of being able to invite other quartets or other clubs to come along and vary what we were going to sing. And if we're putting on a two-hour show, we felt, well, just a straightforward concert would get a bit much, wouldn't it? And so what happened was John Dancer and I, we took shows that were well-known like, well, not just shows, actually um, books as well. We took things like Treasure Island and we took King Kong and we took Guys and Dolls and we made a story up on which we hung the songs which were in our repertoire because we were not in a position as a club, no club would be, I think, to, uh, to learn sort of 10 or 12 songs just for one show. And therefore, we managed to find stories that hung it together. At, at that time, when I went to the States to Harmony College and I came back with a song from the... Um, fr was it from the Muppets? I think it was called Rubber Ducky. If anyone remembers the song Rubber Ducky, Rubber Ducky, you're, you're the one, one. Yep. you make bath time lots of fun. And I brought this back. It was a barbershop arrangement. <laughs> and we did that as a show. And I always remember we finally ended up, <laughs> I think our last show was called Rubber Ducky Meets King Kong on Treasure Island. Now, how about that for a show? You couldn't not buy a ticket to that, could you? <laughs> I was going to ask you about that as well, about, about sort of spreading the word as well. You were initially, Crawley Cordsman, the only chorus in the country. Was it a lot of fun or was that, did, did you feel a bit lonely? Was that part of the reason that you set out, and Harry Dancer particularly set out to try and spread the word as he did? I think so. I mean, I'd come from the States, and of course, uh, the Crawley guys all knew about Barbershop in the States, and knew that there were hundreds of chapters. And we, we felt a little lonely, and we did start spreading the word. And as I say, then what happened was that this gentleman called Barry Best, who was the director of the society at the time, he very kindly came over to Britain in, I think it was 1974, and... Um, he set up some meetings in large towns around the country, and this was all paid for by the society, and they put ad advertisements in the local press saying, anyone who's interested in singing, come along to this meeting and we'll, you, you, may, you may be able to form a club and get some singing done. <coughs> and um, he certainly went to Brighton and he went to Tyneside, and both of those places formed a club, a barbershop club, because of that. Um, we, he centred, of course, in Crawley because we were a club already. I believe he probably went to Reading, but Reading had, had their group there as well. And Barry was a great help to us at that time. And that started spreading it around. And that's where the first four clubs that formed Babs in uh, 1974, which, of course, was Crawley, Reading, Brighton and Tyneside. And we were the first 
four clubs. There was a club in Bournemouth at that time. And um, if you wanted me to maybe go on and chat about the BBC programme at this time. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because one of the things that surprises me is, as, as a again, a chorus PRO myself, who constantly trying to get Barbershop and, and, and our chorus in particular onto the media, it is quite a difficult sell these mm. days. There are so many other people who are competing for limited space. Now, back in the 1960s and 70s, space was even more limited. There weren't the number of TV stations and radio stations they are now. But you seem to have had quite a lot of success. Yes, we did. In 1973, the American Convention, the Society Convention, was in Portland, Oregon. And the BBC, for all their faults, they did a most wonderful thing for us. They sent out a team which was run by Humphrey Littleton, who was a producer and director at the BBC at that time, to make a documentary, an hour-long documentary, of the Portland Convention. And Humph, being a musician, saw the merits of Barbershop immediately and didn't try and put it down and make jokes about it like, unfortunately, so many people in the media have done. He saw what we were doing. And that was a wonderful program. And it was brought back. And I think in 1974, after Babs had been formed, probably late 74, the program went out and it went out at nine o'clock on a Friday evening and there's hardly better prime time than that. You know, you got back from work and you've had dinner and you've had a beer and you sit down and turn the television on and there it is. And the BBC announced that anyone interested should get in touch with them. We got in touch with them and all the people who, who showed an interest were funneled through to Crawley and at that time, we had, I believe, seven clubs. And within a few months, there were 18 clubs in the country. We'd more than doubled that number. And that really helped us to take off because uh, people who showed an interest the BBC, on the programme or after the programme, the BBC said, if anyone is interested in uh, forming a singing group, get in touch with the BBC. And Crawley had been in touch with them and they funneled all those contacts through to Crawley. And we basically helped them. And I, I went to a couple of places to help them out. And we took them music and really got them going. How exciting was it then to find, you know, in it, 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 73, 74, that there were other people around the country who were singing Barbershop? And, and who was it that, 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 that took the initiative to form Babs? I think it was all the clubs, quite frankly. Um, at the, at the initial meeting in the Sky Lane Motel up there by Heathrow, which formed Babs in 1974, there were two members of each of the four clubs, uh, Crawley, Reading, Tyneside and Brighton. And Crawley also sent a ninth gentleman along who took the minutes. And um, basically we, we all wanted to do this because we knew the society in America had a central, well, they were a society a society of chapters, and we called ours clubs, of course, and we wanted to form a society of clubs. And I think we, we'd had what was called a get-together in Crawley in 1973, um, and it was like a mini-convention. And I always remember the Tyneside Club came down in their bus and went back on the same day, 
And don't forget, we didn't have an awful lot of motorways in those days. So I think they got up about three o'clock in the morning, came down, sang at the get-together, and then got back again about three o'clock the next morning, which was really above and beyond the call of duty. And we were delighted that they did, because they were a fine chorus. The following then, year, of course, Newcastle held the first convention. Maybe they decided they didn't want a long bus trip again. Indeed they did. And I think we felt that they shouldn't have a long bus trip again. And we said, right, we had this get-together in Crawley, so we will have our first proper convention with a quartet contest, and we'll have that in Tyneside. And at that uh, contest, I was very privileged to be singing with a quartet called the, the Ringleaders, and we were lucky enough to win that first gold medal in 74. And then the following year, we came down to Brighton, actually, and we held it at the Ocean Hotel in Brighton. And that year was our second year of quartet contest and the first year of chorus contest. <laughs> 525 Oh me, oh my, it's do or die, I gotta learn that auction cry, gotta make my mark and be an auctioneer. Twenty-five dollar bid, got a thirty-dollar thirty. Will you give me thirty? Make it thirty, make it thirty. Bid, will you give me thirty? Will you give me thirty-dollar bid? Got a thirty-dollar bid and a thirty-five. Will you give me thirty-five? Make it thirty-five. Will you thirty-five? Will you give me five? A thirty-five dollar bid. The auctioneer's song, as performed by Bab's first ever gold medal-winning quartet, the Ringleaders. Bob Walker singing lead with Paul Wren tenor, Ron Avis Barry and Bill Little as the bass. And a performance recorded at the first ever Babs Convention in Newcastle and preserved for posterity as part of an LP that they made at the time. My thanks, by the way, to Rod Butcher, who let me use his copy of the recording. Thanks also to Bob Walker. And if Bob's reminiscences have whetted your appetite to know more, then do keep an ear out for the next Harmony UK podcast, where we'll be hearing from many more people who played a key role in the story of Barbershop here in the UK. It's a fascinating story, and I hope that you'll be able to join me. For now, let's play out with the ringleaders. Though the story is only beginning, the auction is just about to end. He makes more noise when he takes a stand than you hear from a real hill day band. He's the best on auctioneer in all the land.